potter and I'm the clay. We have been talking the last few weeks concerning the, the will of God, the desire of God, and talking about the fact that um, God is God and he can do whatever he pleases. Um, that is all within the context of the greater um, subject, if you would, series that we've been looking at, and that is knowing God, the quest. And we have spent the bulk of this year, from the beginning of January, considering the topic. And the reality is that though this is the last week for that topic, it really is the beginning of it. We talked about the illustration way back at the beginning about the ocean and how many people know about the ocean. Um, they're living in Omaha, they're living in uh, Boise, Idaho, wherever, okay? They're living in Pittsburgh, they're living in Augusta. They've never been to the ocean, but they know a lot about the ocean. They've been to Wikipedia, they've studied it out, you know, they, they can tell you the salt content, they can tell you the, the, about the, the high tides and the low tides, and, but they've never been to the ocean. They never experienced the ocean. It's like knowing God. There's a lot of people who know a lot about God. They've studied God. They can tell you a whole lot about Him. But they don't know Him. For 23 years, I went to church. Again, you've probably heard this, but that's okay. You can hear it again. And every Sunday, and I knew a lot about God. I knew that Jesus was God in the flesh. I knew that he died for my sins. I knew that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. But if I were to die that one day when I was 23 years old, I knew that I was going to hell. Because though I knew a lot about God, I didn't know God. And we talked about the difference between oida, the Greek word oida meaning to know factually, and the word gnosko, to know relationally or intimately. God says in John 17, verse 3, Jesus in the flesh, Jesus is praying, and he says, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This isn't just a feel-good message, this isn't just me earning my keep and, and coming on a Sunday just to fill the time, so, because you came here and so somebody's got to say something to fill the time. But this is the greatest passion that you could ever have. Paul said that his greatest passion, his greatest pursuit was to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. And so, as we've considered this quest, we have considered God in um, theognosis. If you remember that, talking about theology is just a study of God, but theognosis is to know God. The existence and exclusiveness of God, that God is and that he is the only God. The composition of God, that God is one. He is, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is solitary, but yet God has revealed himself in three persons. You want to turn those blinds on? That he, God has revealed himself in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the, the Holy Spirit. And so, about a month and a half ago, I shared the fact that, you know, a lot of times we do the addition thing, one plus one plus one is three, and yet we struggle with one plus one. But I said, you know, it hit me. 
that God's not a God of addition, God's a God of multiplication. And so one times one times one is what? It's still one. And that's who God is. Um, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit just don't add to each other. They, they multiply and magnify each other. But then we looked as well in the attributes of God. We considered his natural attributes. We considered the fact that he is sovereign, that he is God, and there is none else, that he reigns over all things. And we talked about how the dominion then works down into man and how man has dominion. We talked about his, the fact that he is, he is limitless. He is limitless in his knowledge. He is limitless in his presence. He is limitless in his power. We talked about his vocational attributes, that he is he's the creator God. He is also the Savior. He is also the Judge. We talked about His moral attributes. We, we began with His holiness and talking about how God is holy, holy, holy. And that if there is one overarching attribute, it would be His holiness, which means His set-apartness. And that He is separate from, from all else. And many times we, we bring it down to just meaning purity, which it is, but it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a, something that basically says that in all of his beings and all of his attributes, God is not like man. He is holy, holy, holy. And then we went to the other side of with the theological spectrum of attributes and talked about his, his love. That God is love, is what the Bible says. And I shared that in that passage, John 3.16, is probably one of the greatest passages on the holiness of God, bringing in the concept of his love. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But if God was just love, then he wouldn't need to send Jesus Christ to die for us. Because he could just accept us as we are, right? I mean, he just that's the, the wishy-washy love. But rather, because God is holy, 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 sin cannot enter into his presence, so God in his love made a plan so that we could be brought back into a relationship with him, into reconciliation, and that we could have the righteousness of God imputed to us. We talked about his righteousness. We talked about his goodness. His goodness expressed in the word of God is his grace and his mercy. Two sides of the coin of his goodness. And um, Grace is when we receive what we don't deserve, and mercy is what, when we don't receive what we do reserve, what we do deserve. I do deserve what? Thank you all. Boy. You're supposed to be my friends. But that's exactly right. I deserve to go to hell. And so do you. But God in his mercy isn't giving me what I deserve. But in his grace, he's provided what I don't deserve. And that is to be restored into his presence. And he's made it so simple that he says that it takes the faith of a child. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is accept what Jesus Christ has done for you. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. It's a done deal. And yet we want to make it harder than it, than it is. Or we want to reject it because in doing that, we acknowledge the fact that I become a servant of the Most High God then, and I don't want to serve anybody. I want to be my own servant. And so, we have looked at this. The last segment that we have begun to look at is the will of God. Or, as I've referred to it as, his desires. Because as we've considered um, the will of God, 
in the will of man, if you would, use using that as an analogy. The fact is that we will do whatever is our greatest passion to do, whatever our greatest desire is. That will become our will. I mean, so in a sense, our decisions being the expression of our will is really the expression of the priority of our desires. And we're told in the Word of God that verse 6 there from Psalm 135 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. God has desires just as you and I have desires. And the quote-unquote will of God will be the expression of his desires. And so we then begin looking at these desires. We, we saw the expression of his desires in the words that he chose to use, using the word for, for will and the counsel and, and, and desire. But then we began to look at the importance of those desires and saw that the, the desires of God or the will of God was important to Christ. Jesus said countless times while he was on the earth how important it was for him to do the will of God. I think it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, God, who was Jesus? He was God in the flesh. Right? And then, then he refers to us, tells us how important it should be to us. And Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will or the desires of my Father in heaven. Next week, we're going we're gonna to talk about the, the um, importance of prayer and, 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 and what prayer is all about. And note from 1 John 5, 14 and 15, and we'll probably use this as a transitional verse next week as we go into that message. It says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to what? His will, his thelema, his desire, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we ask of him. And so if it's important for us to know the will of God in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, and it's important for us to know the will of God so we have answered prayer, then we ought to ask the question, what is the will of God? What are his desires? And so we began then looking at the desires of God. And we saw that the first desire of God, the, the greatest desire of God, his greatest will, the overarching part of his desires and will, is that he would be exalted, that God would be glorified. And he is seeking such people to worship him, to worship him in spirit and truth. And last week we, we saw the second and third one. We saw that coming out of that exaltation of his purpose, of his person, that there in the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 4, when the four and twenty elders and the, and, the, and the angels are giving praise and glory to God, the thing that they're going to glorify God for is that he is the, he's the creator. And so you can see it says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will or desire they exist and were created. And we then saw that how we were created, how we were formed, is all a part of God's desire, his purpose. And that then we can glorify God in a a magnificent way by accepting who we are, how God created us. So many of us are are discontent in how we're created, but we're told in, in, in the Word of God that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And so God has a purpose for us in that. And then then as he created man in his image and likeness and has him for a purpose, and that purpose is for salvation. And we see that from uh, 1 Timothy 2 that God desires all men to be saved. It doesn't say some men, but God desires all men to be saved. And I challenge you, I mean, with all this battle of election versus free will and, and predestination and, and uh, man's responsibility, and um, just to read the word and take the word for what it, says. 
I believe in election. I do. But I believe in the free will of man. I believe that God has given every man the privilege, the right, the dominion to make a decision. Well, Bob, bring it all together. I don't have to. Because I'm not God. All I have to do is believe what he declares in his word. I don't have to synthesize, amalgamate, twist, turn, fit, so that I, I please my own theology. Does that make sense? That's the study of God. And as I've shared in the past so many times, I've lived with this woman who I'm not married to. She married a guy named Crobin. I still have an out 27 years later. Anyways, that's what the marriage certificate says. It says she married a guy named Crobin. Anyways, but anyways, but I've, I've been married to and lived with Marcia for over 27 years. Now, that's not even talking about the pre-marriage time. That's just marriage. That's living in the same house, brushing our teeth at the same sink, you know, using the same shampoo bottle, whatever, how are you going to look at that, okay? You know, you squeeze the toothpaste from the wrong way. You know, you know those things that after you get married, you learned about the other person, you said, oh, I wish I had known this ahead of time. Anyways, how much of a mystery she still is to me. George and Phyllis, you've been married longer than we have. Do you still surprise each other every once in a while? Every once in a while. Once in a blue moon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are... I mean, Marsha's got pictures in her brain that I don't have. She's been places. She's experienced things that I've never have. Even after we've been married. Yeah, they're getting ready to go out on a ladies' retreat, huh? They're going to have pictures of the, of the beach that I've never had. Anyways, and so, but we're not always together. Do, do, you want to see, do you understand what I'm saying? There is a part of this woman that I have spent my life with. I've been, I've been married to her longer than I haven't been married to her. And, and I was joking with her that in 13 years, she'll be married with me over t- for two-thirds of her life. Now, that's a scary thought, isn't it? I mean, some of you just have to put up with me on Sunday morning. She has to put up with me every day, and 67% of her life, you know? But I know that I still do things that she sits there and goes, good grief, I thought I had him pegged. And if I can't figure this woman out, who I have all this opportunity to, how can I ever think that I've got God figured out? Does it make sense? I mean, we got him in a box, man. We, 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 we read books on theology. So that when you're done reading this book, you what? You know, you got God figured out. You just know where to, where to touch that Aladdin's lamp and to, you know, because you know, God just, he, he likes to be scratched right here. You know, now I know I'm making a, I'm making a farce, but sometimes we, we treat God that way. And God is God. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth and all that is therein. And he's the one who breathed the breath of life into us and desires to have a relationship with us and desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. The reason that man isn't because they choose not to believe. But God's desires don't end there. 
God has one more significant desire. There's lots of those desires, but I've kind of broken them down into these four. And that is the desire for his sanctification of his children. We've read 1 Thessalonians 4 this morning, but turn with me there, and let's look at it together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As we begin to consider the sanctification of his children. You know, it's amazing to me how many times people say, but I just wish I knew what the will of God is. And how many times we've seen as we've gone through this, right? It talks very clearly about what? And this is the will of God. I mean, it's right there. Just get eSword. It's free. For those who have never heard my, my, my advertisement for eSword before, you know, this is my advertisement. I didn't write it. I don't get a kickback from it. It's free. A guy named Rick Myers, I don't even know who he is, wrote it. I've sent him donations, though, you know, because I appreciate what he's done. He doesn't charge for it. Freely you receive, freely give. And so if you don't have a computer pro- or Bible program on your computer, shame on you. Go to esword.net and download it. You, there's tons of different versions you can get for free. You can get the Greek. You can get the Hebrew. You can get concordances. You can get dictionaries. You can get references. It's amazing. You get Fox's Book of Martyrs and read it on there. Um, you can get uh, Brother Andrew's writings. You can get um, the, who's the guy that did all the, the books on prayer? Um, well, Andrew Murray's book on prayer is there as well, but um, the four books, Bounds. E.M. Bounds books, I believe, are there as well. And so there are maps there. It's all free. I know, people say you get what you pay for. It's America. I just, I don't get America. You've got to charge for something so people think it's worth something. This is free, and it's of God. It's worth more than what you can pay for, okay? I mean, you can go spend $600 on Logos in one of those software packages, but I'm telling you, you're going to get the same thing for free. I'm a computer guy, and I'm a Bible guy, and that's the one I have. Okay? I haven't paid $600, so I tell you to go get it. But here, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us, how you ought to walk, how you ought to live, and how you ought to what? Please God. Now that ought to, by itself, tell us something that that it ought to be a desire of our heart to do what? Please God with our what? With our walk, with our life. That's exactly right. For you know what commandments we gave you. Wait a second. Commandments? Like laws? I thought that was Old Testament stuff. Paul says, we gave you commandments. Commandments. We gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. I don't know how much more plain God can put out what his will is for us, right? This is the will of God. Your sanctification. The word sanctification is the, is the, um, the verb form of holy. In the New Testament, the, the word for holy is the word hagios. It is the word that is translated as well as saint. You are holy ones. You are hagioi. And so when, it, when Paul writes to the saints which are at Ephesus, he's writing to the hagioi of Ephesus. Does that make sense? Okay. So this word here, sanctification, is, is hagiosmos. It is the process of becoming hagios. Do you get it? So this is the process of becoming holy. And so think of the word sanctification. Sanctification. Saint. Do you hear it? Do you get it? 
That's the word that comes in. And so saint is a sanctified one, is what it means. This word means then becoming, in the process of becoming holy. God's will for you is that you would continually be in the process of becoming more and more holy. Go back to the introduction. I did a long introduction, right? Why do you think that it's important for God, for you, to become holy? Because He's holy. Mom and Dad, do you not want your children to walk in your steps? Now, I I don't want them to to struggle with the lusts that I struggle with. I I don't want them, you know, whether it's the, the... whether it's the lust of the flesh, like, like sexual lust of the flesh, or whether it's anger, or whether it's um, covetousness for, for you know, lust of the eyes kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying. I, the evil side. I don't want them to, to, to have those parts of me. But there's parts of me who would love to see my kids walk in my steps. Does that make sense? To walk in the faith that, that I've walked in. To to like the things that I like, to do the things that I do, that I could have close fellowship with them. We're made in the image of God, image and likeness of God. That desire, I think, comes from Him. God desires His children to be like Him. In fact, we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, verse 28, you all know very well, it says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But in verse 29 we're told what the purpose is. For whom he did foreknow he also did predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's purpose for me in my life is to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. To be sanctified. To be set apart. To become more and more Holy, to be set apart. To be set apart from what? Well, we're told in here some things and throughout God's word, many things. So it says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like who? Like the Gentiles. Who what? who do not know God. Now, isn't that interesting? Isn't this the topic we're talking about, knowing God? And God says, this is the will. My will for you is that you would be set apart and that you would not act like the Gentiles who don't know God. You are my children, and I want you to be like me, not like the unregenerate. And so as we go into this, the challenge to me, as it is to you, is who do you look more like? Whose image are you conforming to? Can the world pick you out that you're different? Do believers know that you're a believer? Or are you camouflaged pretty good? You know, when I go hunting, I dress differently. I dress as much as I can like foliage and trees. 
The other day when I got that deer, we had heard shots coming from the, the end of the peninsula. Um, Timmy came out to help me. I praise God for Timmy coming out just on his own, coming out to help me with that deer because it was, it was down in, in, in the, the valley in the cove and, and I started dragging it from the water's edge out into the cove and, and I said, Whew, this guy's bigger than I thought he was. So I left him lay there and I went to get Greg's dolly <laughs> that he had made for, for hauling deer out and, uh, and I'm thinking, this is still going to be, because it's, you know, like this up the hill to get it out. And so Timmy met me there. But on the way to go get it, we heard gunshots. So we assumed that, that Greg or Ben had got one because they were down that way. So we waited a while, went and got the deer and brought it up and took the deer off the dolly then and threw it to the, in the side of the wood so that just in case somebody came along the side to pick it up and take it, you know. And we just kind of put it there, but it would be there when we came back through. Went down to the peninsula, past Ben's site. He hadn't shot. It wasn't his. And he said, yes, it came from the, that part of the peninsula. I think Mr. Greg must have got one. So we went down with the dolly, making noise, in the Greg's hunting area. Now, I thought he was further in the peninsula than he actually was. And uh, Anyways, but as we're, we're going down, we hear, hey. Now, I know he's there, but it still took him going like this for me to see him. He did a great job of what? Blending like a tree. <laughs> Camouflaging. The sad thing is, that's many of us in the world. Rather, we should be sticking out like a sore thumb. Not sore to God, sore to the world. We should be different. He says, don't act like the, the Gentiles act. And so, we ought to have a desire to be pure. Turn with me to First Peter chapter 1. We're going to be turning and looking at a few passages in 1 Peter today. Right now in chapter 1. Verse 13. It says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Do you know what it means to gird up the loins? Back then they... Go ahead, say it again. Get ready to run. But they had a, like the, the robe on. And so they would, they would bring it up so they would not be um, tied down but they would be free to, to run as fast as they could. And so they would roll up their, their skirt, in a sense, the guys would, and they would tuck it into their belts. Okay? And so they would, he says, you've got to do this. You've got to gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance... But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Why? Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And so we're told not to conform ourselves. Not to make ourselves in the word there conformed. And we're going to look at it again from Romans 12 in a moment. But the word conformed there uh, comes from two words. Meta meaning to change. And schemate means your outward appearance or the outward form of something. Don't change your outward appearance as you used to do. See, before you were saved, you used to do that. You used to want to conform. You want to want to be like the world so that you would receive the world's what? Acceptance, approval. That's exactly right. So you could fit in. And guys, you know how it is. I mean, I, I, when I delivered 
when I did the delivery truck stuff, and I had to go to a lot of different places, and whether it was, you know, a, uh, a lumber yard or whether it's a, a, a plumber's um, supply place or whatever, a guy's establishment has not-so-nice stuff setting up. And there is, if you work in those places, there is a, a pressure on you to what? To be like everyone else. I know a, a young man um, in his young 20s um, who, um, some of you may try to guess who it is, but I'll give you one more thing because it's important to give it. He's an, he's an EMT, okay? So he works with fire stations, okay? And where he was working, they were doing that to him. They were pressuring him. They would even text him with stuff. Or, no, they didn't text him. They would bring up their phones, and they would show, you know. And, and he said, the one guy handed him the phone and said, hey, take a look at this. And he threw the guy's phone and broke it. You know what? Nobody gave him a phone again. And he kept getting, about putting cigarettes in his face. And so the, he took a guy's pack of cigarettes and, crunched them. Now, I'm not telling you to be that bold, okay? But the point is, the pressure is there to do what? To conform. To conform. To be like us. Listen, if you are standing in God's righteousness, you are a sore thumb to them. You are a conviction just by your presence being there. You don't have to say anything. They know they're wrong. And if they can get you to do it, it what? It vindicates or justifies themselves. It brings you down and justifies them. But our standard of righteousness is not our own righteousness, which is a filthy rag. But our standard of righteousness, as we already looked at the righteousness of God, is his righteousness. It is what is right according to the eyes of God. Of God. And so we are told to be holy, to be set apart as God is set apart. That is my standard. Jesus said, Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. He didn't say it's okay to be 98% holy. Because though you obey the whole law and yet you offend in one point, you're guilty of, of it all. That's exactly right. If your goal is not to be holy as God is holy, you haven't got God's standard. This is the will of God for you. I'm not a prophet. I'm just a reader of Scripture. I can be pretty bold on this point. I mean, this isn't Bobism at all. Bob's not making any interpretations. Bob's not adding to Scripture, deleting from Scripture. Bob's not doing twisting. God, Bob's not commenting. This is the will of God. Even your sanctification. That you not be conformed, not be like the Gentiles, and not be conformed to your former lusts. It's what you used to be. Now, I understand Romans chapter 7, and I understand Galatians chapter 5. I understand that there's a war that's going on within me between my flesh and my spirit between my old man and my new man. I know that it's there, but I also know in Ephesians chapter 5 that I'm told to put off the old man and put on the new man, which is created after God in righteousness and true holiness. 
I know that. That doesn't mean it gets rid of the struggle, but I want that. And in the midst of the struggle, when I struggle with my flesh and I give in to my flesh, I am instantly convicted by it. Saddened by it, remorsed by it, convulsed by it, sickened by it. It's an abomination to my God, to my Father. It's a stench in his nostrils and it should be something that's sickening in my, my stomach. And as God reveals the dross in me, I confess it before him and plead with him to do what? Change me more and more. He's the potter and I'm the clay. Do you know why we sang, have thine own way, Lord, at the beginning of that? Marsha was telling me, you need to tell people that, that this is a, you know, though it's an invitation song, it's something, we don't have invitations here, so we don't really do invitation songs. But it makes more sense to sing it beforehand because I want you to have that, that, that mindset coming into the message when we're looking at it. It's not after the fact. After you've slept, had a good half hour of sleep, and then also we wake up and say, oh, wait, what was I, what were we, how did I know way, Lord? But what did he say? I'm not quite sure I agree. You're the potter and I'm the clay. Mold me and make me after your will. Ooh. But you know what? God created woman to be, to be appreciated. If he didn't want him to be appreciated, he wouldn't make him so beautiful, right? I, that kills me when I hear that. What a, what a, what a poor seeking, seeking to justify our flesh. Do you have a desire to be pure physically as God desires you to have, be pure physically? In Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, you can turn there, but many of you know the passage. It says that finally, um, that Paul is, I urge you, brethren, uh, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship or service. We'll come back to that. And be not conformed to this world, but rather be transformed in the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to prove what is the good inacceptable, imperfect, what? Will of God, desires of God. That by your life, how you live, you will prove to the world what the will of God is. What God's desires are. And you know how you do that? First of all, by offering your body as a living sacrifice. That means that you're going to willingly give up things that your body, that your flesh may desire. Because you want to be set apart to God. That's what a sacrifice is. A sacrifice is something that, that you're giving up. It is not a sacrifice for me to give you my green beans. It is a pleasure. Come to my house. We have green beans. If you want a double portion, I promise you, I will bless you. I will sacrifice my green beans for you. If there's lima beans, I'll be double generous. I'll give you the lima beans as well. Okay? We're having lasagna today. Don't ask for my portion. Anyways. <laughs> no, no. If, if you didn't have a portion, then I would at least split mine or give you all of it. You know, I'll lick the pan. Anyways. But green beans, it's not a sacrifice. Get it? God says, offer your body as a living Sacrifice. That means that there will be times in your life when you do things because it's God's will, not necessarily 
the most pleasant thing that your flesh wants. Does that make sense? And he says, this is your reasonable act of, King James says, worship. Some of yours says, service. It's the word latria, latrio, okay, which is what we refer to this as. This is our worship what? Service. It's an act of service as worship to God. Okay, that's what it is. So both of those words are right there. It's your reasonable act of service in worship to God is really what it is. If you really know God and you want to worship him, you're reasonable. This is reasonable. This is not unreasonable. This is just flat out. This is it. If you know him and if you love him, this is what you're going to desire to do. You're going to lay out, your, lay out everything you are on the altar of God that he may alter everything that you are. I love that quote. I got it on a piece of thing. All, my all was on the altar that you may alter all that I am. All that I am is on the altar that you may alter all that I am. And so I give myself fully to him. And then there is a volitional thing that I need to do as well, and that is I volitionally need to seek to not be conformed to this world. I need to take my eyes off of the world, and I need to stop doing things just because the world does them. And I need to to change my worldview in my mindset, and I need to stop thinking things are good because the world thinks they're good, but rather I need to have a God view. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, and I, I put this up here because you can see all the, the colors that go on here. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, we saw that in 1 Thessalonians 4 as the Gentiles. okay, And we saw that in 1 Peter 1 as your former state. okay, That was your unbelieving state. And so we're not supposed to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Do you see the parallelism going on there? we got fellowship, communion, accord, part, and agreement. That means what? There's, there's, a, there's a tightness going on. There's, there's, there's a... There's a, there's a, there's a um, Unity that's happening. You're, you've joined with this. Okay, why? There, there can't be this because you got righteousness, light, Christ, a believer. That's hopefully you and I, right? Those who have believed this in the temple of God, and then we're told, "For you are the temple of the living God." Okay, it says that there can be no unity, there can be no bonding, there can be no fellowship, there can be none of this with that which is lawlessness, darkness, Belial, an unbeliever, or idols. Now, that doesn't mean that, like in, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, and he says, I'm not telling you that you can't have anything to do with unbelievers, because then there would be no reason for you to be in the world. But what he's saying is, don't be like them. Don't join together in their projects. Someone this week um, mentioned, Devin, as far as the, you know, the, the need for full circle, have we considered going the United Way? I haven't replied to them yet. But this is my whole, my, my whole answer toward us looking to the United Way for funding. The United Way is all about um, funding abortion and, and all these other things. I don't want their money. I don't give them money. I don't join with 
the unbelievers. I don't join with the unregenerate. I don't join with ungodly people in an ungodly plan. Next Sunday is Halloween. Halloween. No, it's not. It's Samhain. Or Samhain. Depends on how you want to state it. It is the high Sabbath of witches and of the dark world. It is the time when those who are pagans and who who celebrate paganism believe that the, the veil between life and death is the thinnest. And when those who have died pass on into the next world, and if you are going to be reincarnated, we don't believe in reincarnation, right? Okay, But they do. That you will be brought back in. It is a time when evil spirits can slip back into the into our world. And that's why they have the practice, and why they began the practice back then, of wearing masks so they could hide themselves from, from the, the evil spirits. And they began then to put evil expressions on so they would be able to camouflage with the evil spirits and look like the evil spirits so the evil spirits wouldn't do anything to them. And we dress our kids up like that in our country to become a part of the Samhain or Samhain celebration. But we want to call it Halloween. And I know some of you are having some celebrations, and I don't mean to to put a wet towel, okay? But I want to teach. The Roman Catholic Church, how we get Halloween, is the Roman Catholic Church has over the the last 1,500 years plus, has practiced what is called syncretism, which is the amalgamation of different theological views to, into one. They blend. Instead of being separate, instead of doing what God has said, they go into an area, they see the lawlessness, darkness, Belial, unbeliever, and idols, and they find some way to bring it into the church. I'll talk about Easter and Christmas some other time. But Easter and Christmas are pagan holidays as well. Okay. Now, why do we do that? Well, we have the Feast of the Resurrection, we have the Feast of the Incarnation, because I do believe that Jesus was incarnated around that time frame. I do believe that Jesus um, was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits, which was the first Sunday, of the, the first first day of the week after the Sabbath of Passover. Okay. We'll talk about that at a different time. But Easter is the word estermonoth, it comes from the, the goddess Ishtar. Okay? It's not a Christian origin. It's one that the Roman Catholics brought in. They brought in a, a pagan holiday. And the same thing with the Christ Mass. Okay? That's Saturnalia and Bromelia. That also is, is a Roman um, pagan holiday. But there was nothing around Halloween at all for the church to celebrate. And so they took, think about this, they took very blatantly the pagan celebration of the dead and they brought it into the church. That's where you get the All Saints Eve from. And I've seen churches, I mean, I, you know, you understand that I, I, I'm on this little thing that I get emails from pastors and missionaries through Jerry Smith. You know, he's just passing on. And one of the questions is, you know, what do you do in October type stuff? And and these churches that are having these All Saints parties. You know, 
one of the things I teach my kids is it's okay for us to be separate. It's okay for us to see something that the world's doing and not have to have a replacement for it. I'm called to be separate. Now, if, if you all choose to have things, that, that's, up, that's between you, and I'm not, it's not a judgmental statement, okay? I'm just teaching from Bob's view here. Okay? You have to decide between you and God what you do. I don't want to be any part with the lawlessness, darkness, Belial, idols, and, and unbelievers. Why? Because as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says Yahweh. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says El Shaddai. Yahweh Shaddai, the Lord Almighty. It is God's desire for us to be separate from the things the paganism, the ungodliness, the unrighteousness of the world, not to be apart. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Hopefully you're still there in 1 Peter. And in chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, we read, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme, or as to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is what? The will of God. Oh, you love it? I mean, what definitions here? This is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, we saw in 1 Timothy 2 that God called us through Paul to pray for the kings and all those who are in authority, right? What do we read right now that is the will of God? Not only that, that they be saved, but the will of God is for us to do what? Submit. To honor. To honor those who are in authority. To submit to those who are in authority. Listen, those who are in authority may not appreciate it. But do you get what God says through Peter? That by doing good we may what? We may silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. It may be here on the earth, or it may be one day before the judgment seat of God. But it is God's will for us to have a different worldview than those who are ungodly in the world. God desires for us to live a godly life. And one of those ways is for our submission to the governing authorities. As long as those governing authorities are doing what? Not asking us to do something that is contrary to God. That's exactly right. Okay? And then when that happens, what do I do? I disobey the governing authorities, but I obey God, right? Well, I'll keep that in your mind, and let's go to chapter 3, verse 15. Where we're told to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. There are going to be times when you do righteousness in the world, that you do what God has asked you to do in being sanctified and set apart for His holiness, and the world doesn't like it, and you suffer for it. You may lose your job. You may get thrown in jail. Whatever it is, you may suffer for it. But God says, listen, 
That's the thing that you need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you for. Because it is better for you if it is the will of God for you to suffer for doing good. Clearly rather than doing what? Evil. Drop down to chapter 4, beginning of verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Gossip. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, as a little Christ, as a reflection of the Messiah, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteousness, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. The time is coming in our land. Now is, but will be more so. When to proclaim the name of Jesus boldly will bring a reproach. Will bring repercussions will ultimately bring um, pain and loss in some manner. And God says, this is my will for you to suffer for my namesake. Now note a theme going throughout all this. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. It's twofold. You have to turn away from God, from the world and turn toward God. Some people turn away from the things of the world. That's called a reformation. And you know what happens when people go through reformations many times? It's full circle. They go back to the, to the things that they came from. But Romans 12, 2 told us to not be conformed, but rather to be transformed. That word is the changing of your nature. Remember I said the other one was the changing of your outward appearance? This is your morphe. There are two. There are a couple words for, for form, but there's two primary words for form. There is the morphe and the schemati that is used referring to us. My schemati has changed through the years. In fact, depending on how well I shave in the morning, it can change drastically. You know, if I take off the mustache, you know, and when I had a beard, you know, I shave off the beard, you know, things change. But even apart from just the facial hair, if you see my pictures from when I was five, six years old, there is some resemblance, but clearly I have changed. But my morphe, my inner being, has never changed. Do you get it? It's who I am. But God calls us to go through a changing of our inner man, a transformation, 
Do you get it? Through the what? Renewing of our mind. See, I'm going to be who I am, but how I am and act can change. Do you get it? And that comes through how? The Word of God. The Word of God. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. That's the what? Staying, turning away from the world. Not being conformed to the world. Not being like the Gentiles. Not conforming to the former lusts. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. That's the turning to God. He's meditating, delighting, spending his time pursuing God through his word. God wants you to be set apart to his holiness. All I can tell you is that when I struggle in my flesh, almost undoubtedly, I can go back to my quiet time journal and tell you that I haven't been having quiet time or it's just been superficial. Do you get it? But if you're desiring to know God and pursuing Him, this is life eternal, that you will live in that life, that life that He wants you to have joyously and abundantly. But if you start punching a ticket as a Pharisee, as a scribe, then you will be as the scribes and Pharisees were. You will be whitewashed sepulchers, clean on the outside, inside full of dead men's bones. And you know what happens when you, it's rotten on the inside? What happens if you go to a piece of wood and the wood is rotten on the inside, but outside it looks pretty good? It, it breaks at an inopportune time, and the outside will eventually what? Look like the inside. So as we conclude this series, growing in your knowledge of God and conforming to that knowledge is the greatest pursuit that you can have. Are you a part of that pursuit? Your life should be all about God. It says in the Word of God, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything that I do, does your life reflect the life that is set apart to God? Are you becoming more conformed to the image of the world or to the image of Christ? If your answer is, I don't know, then very clearly you're deceiving yourself and you do know. Don't deceive yourself. If your heart's desire is to be like Jesus, then you'll know that. If you can't honestly, in, in your mind, and I'm not asking for a show of hands, if you can't honestly say, my heart's desire, my greatest desire in life is to be like Jesus, is to be conformed to his image, then you don't have God's will in your life. Now, isn't that a pretty dogmatic statement? But I can stand on that, because God's desire, God's will for you, is to be sanctified, is to be in the process of increasingly becoming more conformed to the image of Christ. That one thing I know undoubtedly. And if you don't have that desire, if it's not your purpose, if it's not your will, then you're not walking in the will of God. So, the next time you ask yourself, what's the will of God for my life? You know. You know.
to be like him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you that you desire us to know you and that you have told us that this is life eternal, that we would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And that you did all that, that we could have a relationship with you, that we could be conformed to your image, that we could put off the old man and put on the new man, which is created in righteousness and true holiness. You told us as well not to be like the Gentiles, for we had not so learned Christ, but rather to put on Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful. Faithful stewards of the truth of your word. To read it, to study it, to memorize it, to meditate upon it, to apply it to our lives. Lord, that we would desire to be conformed to the image of Christ and not the image of the world. Lord, help us, though, to be a reflection in the world to those. Help us, Lord, to to have a hunger and a desire that you have, and that is that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. That it would not be a matter of standing in judgment in our sanctification and our separateness. That we wouldn't be like the Pharisees looking down the nose. But God, that it would be with a hunger and a passion to see others come to know the joy that we know in you. Truly, Jesus, you've said that those who do the will of God, are your brothers and are your sisters. Lord, help us to act like we really are part of the family. In Jesus' name, amen.